Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Careers, the podcast where we discuss multi-hyphenates, dig deep into hustle culture, and find hobbies to fill the time between planning imaginary vacations to other countries. We're your hosts, Mallory, Austin, and Kempthren. Hey! Hello! We're doing it! Howdy, guys! This is Mallory, audiobook expert and coffee connoisseur. I'm Austin Mark, sit-down comedian and brain doctor. And I'm Catherine, a professional wingman and the lesser-known superhero. Yay, guys, we're here. It's episode something. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. But we are getting to the point where we've recorded quite a few, so it's hard to even keep track. So it's fun to be back again. Another interview episode coming up. But I know, Catherine, before we jump into that, we were going to kind of touch on a multi-hyphenate of the week. Generally, we're trying to draw attention to somebody who is a multi-hyphenate. I've been consuming a lot of television, and so I've been fortunate enough to be reminded of the very funny, very acerbic poet, author, speaker, and, I mean, humorist, Fran Leibowitz. And so I recently watched on Netflix, it's a new, and I guess I, it's a, it's a limited series. I don't know if they'd call it a documentary, really, because I, but it is conversations between Leibowitz and Martin Scorsese, which part of the, we'll talk about that later too, but part of the funny part of it is like, she just has an opinion on everything and even it admits that like she has no authority, but I strive to be someone who could be as funny and witty and quick witted as she is. So then at least I can get away with having more opinions than anyone cares to hear. <laughs> but she's also really famously like a, a New Yorker. I think people find that interesting about her, you know, and as I do as well as I'm about to live in the city. <laughs> and so she's been there since the 70s. And so she just has great stories too. And so I think her through line is a storyteller. I do also think it's interesting that she's very open about the fact that mm. she, when she first moved to New York, she actually worked as um, a taxi cab driver. And so it was just like this idea uh, that we've been talking about so much of like doing these jobs um, that some other people would obviously consider careers. And she talks about at the time, like she was the only woman taxi cab driver. That was not a situation where I feel like they were there to support her or share information so she'd be able to do her job better. But um, it's very open that she'd never want to do that again. But this is something that we all, you know, we all have to sometimes take that job where it's might be the career for other people, but it's a stepping stone towards another endeavor. And so still having pride in what you're doing and knowing that that's only going to add to your bag of tricks that you can then pull out later. I don't know. Maybe she's really good at directions now, but I think that would also. (laughs) That's New York. You just go up or down. It is a grid. Famously. (laughs) I was going to say, I think that leads me to the through line which is that, you know, this documentary series is very much about her love of this city, of New York City, and how it's shaped her, and how she identifies. It's almost like that's that other character in her life. And I do feel like Eric also really talks about this through line of growing up in the Aspen Valley, how that has shaped him to know that he is part of this larger ecosystem and to care about sustainability. And he's created the two very interesting 
companies as an artist and maker, but always looking towards making a more collaborative and sustainable future in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to hear the interview that we did with Eric Angus, who was a contact of Catherine's. Where did you come across Eric? My, my partner uh, connected me with Eric. And so I've been able, had the fortune of been able to speak with him and, and spend some time with him thanks to different events, art events throughout Aspen. And so he just seems like such an interesting person to be able to dig a little deeper due to his really impressive, not only resume, but just skill sets and interests. So this will be fun. For sure. Yeah, it's a journey. Well, let's hear it, guys. Yay. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us. We're excited to have you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yay. Welcome. You do so many really interesting things. I and mean, before we started recording, I, you mentioned how you consider yourself more of a maker, which I think is a really interesting place to start. And I'd love to hear what it is that you feel like you get to do, what you want to do, and kind of everything in between. Yeah, definitely. So I have a few different things going on. Like you said, um, my main day job right now is working at an art museum. I'm an art handler, preparator, and now a technician too has been added on. So a lot of hyphenates within that, but mainly what we're responsible for is taking care of the art, handling it, installing it, and building out whatever parts of the shows that happen. So sometimes it's a lot of different hats that we wear. Usually we work for about two months and then we have two months off. So got to fill those gaps somewhere. And so I also have a skateboard company that I started selling boards this summer. I've been working on it for about three years now. And then I have a fabrication company that I started last February. Great time to start a business. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say. I also started a business last February. <laughs> yeah, exciting times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> couldn't have picked a better one. But yeah, so within that, there's a lot of different things that happen. But what my passion is, is just making things. I like working with my hands. That's something I learned probably about 10 years ago, really. And something that I've been working towards for all of those 10 years is trying to figure out how to do it and how to make a living and how to make ends meet and stay happy about everything. And I think that it's a lot easier to just say I'm a maker than explain every aspect of every facet of everything. So that's usually what I lead with. (laughs) Yeah. I like that juxtaposition. Just, okay. We're going to say that word one more time. (laughs) The the juxtaposition of the maker versus the multi-hyphenate. Because I do, I think in a way, maybe they're somewhat interchangeable or capable of describing somebody doing many things. But I like the version maker because it does pull to mind somebody who's creating constantly and perhaps even with their hands, bringing something physically creative into the world versus a multi-hyphenate who might be like our definition is obviously balancing many jobs and we're bringing hopefully lots of people under this umbrella. But initially it was more of the, I don't know, the arts of acting and singing and dancing. And so maybe the fine arts, but the, yeah, not, you're not bringing something physical with you. So I love that differentiation. And I think it comes from my background in fine arts. Really. I started as a photography major in undergrad and you have to do a foundations period during that so you do all the different media and every media that I tried I was just like oh I like that I want to do that now too so I just kept collecting these different things and at a certain point I just had to be like I'm an artist or like I'm a maker (laughs) or I'm 
this because you can't just be like i'm a ceramicist and i'm a sculptor and you know, it's a lot easier to just boil it down to one thing and i think it's all kind of related right all this creative practice that makes sense to us and keeps us going mm -hmm. that definitely resonates with me as someone who has been an artist as a career for 15 years i was a makeup artist and then in pandemic world i'm not not doing makeup because you can't touch people's faces so i kind of pivoted and have been leaning harder into hobbies and i started building these miniature things and i describe myself as a miniaturist occasionally and repeatedly on this podcast so i don't know why i'm shying away from it now but but i do i get what you're saying about you know i started by building this miniature room and then a miniature house and then i started sculpting things out of clay and then i got you know a lathe and a bunch of other tools and i started building on the skill set to a point where it's intertwined and i'm using all of those skills in one area but they're also very separate skills that could be used in very separate hobbies or jobs so that does make a lot of sense where when you're adding on extra skills that it no longer feels like you're building on separate things, but like it's more of this one nebulous maker thing that you become. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think of like making skateboards the same way. Like I'm making this complex thing out of wood where I'm making a sculpture, but it's also this object. It's a commodity. It's not really furniture, but it's along the same level of woodworking. Mm -hmm. So it's like kind of hard to explain that in an easy way. You know, it's just like I make skateboards, but so much more than just a skateboard because I make the molds too. I make everything from hand. And so it is this sculpture on the other side of it, but it's not like a fine art sculpture. So it's more of this product and, but it's all the same tools as I'd make a sculpture with, or it's all the same information and materials really. So it all kind of crosses over to a point where it just is easier to say one thing. You're just a maker. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> just working on getting better at making stuff, whatever that is. <laughs> making a life, man. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you hope. Making excuses, making a mess, making a life. Hey. Sometimes making money. Why not? Yeah. Any day now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd love to find out the inspiration. You make um, artisanal, if you will, skateboards by hand, but it's really, I was really interested in the non-toxic and sustainable focus of the company. Could you explain what Yeah. Yeah, inspired you? Definitely. So it comes from, actually, it spurred from a moment in grad school. Um, and I had a studio visit with an artist. And this artist told me I did like a sound performance. And they told me it was the most like straight, white, young person thing they've ever seen. And I was like, cool. <laughs> So that's like, yeah, I'm doing it. But it really got me to think about what my culture was and kind of as an American, you know, not really having a culture like that's passed down. You know, my dad passed down rock and roll music. Mm -hmm. so I was like, oh, the guitar makes sense or whatever. But I was thinking about my upbringing and how skateboarding was one of the early things that I found. And at the time I was doing really environmental art and kind of realizing manufacturing and all that and how it's not necessarily green and like obviously skateboards it's like a wooden product that's disposable not like a green eco-friendly thing <laughs> on its own mm -hmm. kind of hard to sell that as that uh, so I tried to look into it and think about like how we could do it differently and started thinking of it more as a piece of fine woodwork the so most skateboards are covered in lacquer you know they're screen printed on they're made in a factory usually in Mexico or China mm. And so all that goes into that and how that could be done differently. So I use hemp oil to finish mine. It's all 
natural. I do use like an industrial made glue. Mm-hmm. You have to compromise somewhere. Mm-hmm. Them falling apart mid roll. <laughs> right, it has to be a skateboard. Right, I can't sell it as like if it was a chair, it'd be one thing, but it's a skateboard that has to like jump downstairs or like take a beat and work. So that's the compromise is the glue, and then everything else is is natural and eco friendly as possible. I made two hydraulic presses, so it doesn't require energy to actually make my boards. Amazing. Cut them out on a bandsaw, and that's really the only power tool I use, just because of speed. Mm-hmm. First few I did all by hand, and it took forever. You I mean you're not whittling it. these boards yourself? <laughs> I could not charge enough to sell those. What boards. kind of a maker doesn't whittle their own skateboards? But yeah, after I cut them, then everything's shaped out by hand. So it's it's always a drawing. Most factories use a template, so every board is exactly the same every time, and I'm totally against that. I want it to be a little bit different, and each one has character. There's no graphics, no branding. It's all natural. And oh, amazing. Yeah, it's all hand done. And it's really, it's it's made by a skateboarder for skateboarders. You know, it's not about profit either because there's no way to really charge enough for a skateboard these days. They haven't gone up in price in the last 50 years. Whoa. It's kind of one of those markets that's pretty locked in. I mean, you can buy a cheap skateboard for $30. Wow. wow. I get my materials for $35. Oh so it's gosh. like... Yeah, and if I was making thousands of skateboards, it'd be different, mm-hmm. just supply of what I'm buying. But I made 25 boards last year, so it's wow. like pretty pretty small scale. Mm-hmm. But what's cool is it sounds like you're finding this apex almost between what someone asks you, what's your culture, and like the skateboarding culture, and then maybe more of the environmentalist-minded individual. And so, I mean, that sounds very Aspen, Colorado to me, in terms (laughs) of someone who likes to be outside, you know, even growing up, I don't want to age you into anything, but at least in my age group, I grew up in the mountains too, bands, shoes, all the skateboarding, the aesthetic was very in and very happening at that time. And so it's, it resonates for me, which is what I'm trying not to say anymore, but (laughs) it resonates for me as something that is very of this place, but then bringing in the environmentalist side is also of this place. And what the apex you found, I think that's so fascinating because you're right. Maybe you're not selling as many as, you know, the brands that are able to manufacture out of China, but the purpose and the art and like the true maker behind it, it sounds like a very worthy endeavor. Yeah. Thank you. It's definitely a passion project. It's not going to support me ever. (laughs) But it'll Maybe. put yeah. it'll put skateboards under my feet. Yeah, you know? the point I didn't make and I was trying to is just so that it seems neat to try to bring two people that maybe wouldn't have understood that they could be related together. Absolutely. Right. An environmentalist might not see themselves in a skateboarder. And the skateboarder is maybe not going to see themselves in an environmentalist. But what you're doing is showing them they can. They can communicate. There's a shared benefit, especially if they do. Yeah. And so it's kind of a a conversation starter, right? So it's like, I'm taking these efforts to make this in the way that I think is right. And I'm a small company. So maybe that'll get you to think about anything else that you buy or anything else that you consume, you know, out in the world. The company is called Anthropocene. And so that's the current geologic epoch. So that's a shift in our world's history where there's a definitive trace of humans in the ecosystem, in the rocks. Oh, wow. That's something that happened in like the 90s. So it has this kind of ecological foreshadowing to it and kind of 
how it came out of was some writing in my thesis talking about environmentalism and our changing climate and all these things and the amount of concrete on our planet and how we don't really have a say in that. And so it was kind of my punk take on it was like, I'm not asked about this concrete being somewhere, but I can tear it down with my skateboard. And so that's like our duty as skaters mm. is to like bring back nature with these weapons of mass uh, enjoyment, inspiration, yeah. really. Yeah, enjoyment, <laughs> inspiration. And it's really just like bricolage. Like it's riding a skateboard through a city is jamming with the city. You know, you're using these features that someone else has made for something else and you're turning it into your own artistic expression. And it's not really that antagonizing. It's kind of noisy and it makes a mess, but it's really not that bad. It's a better mode of transportation than a car mm -hmm, yeah. in my view, you know? So it's like, you have to bring those things into question of like, where is the economic and ecological impact and like how, what's my role in that? In one way, it's a company, it's kind of a conceptual art project company, but it's also to start a conversation in a different culture that feels important to me. And I think a lot of those people are already kind of of that mindset. A lot of skateboarders are do-it-yourselfers and think for themselfers. And I think that there's a space for that, especially, too, with the Olympics coming up. Like, skateboarding is about to be an Olympic sport. Oh, wow. So you're about to see it do what snowboarding did and split into this very competitive world and this very, like, underground punk rock. Mm -hmm. And you can choose which side is right. I think both are valid. Mm -hmm. But everyone's going to have their voice within it, and that's kind of a cool opportunity. I like that. I feel yeah. so educated on skateboard culture now <laughs> yeah. and also inspired. Like, I think I've gotten on a skateboard maybe a couple of times in my life. And now I want to go jam in a city on a skateboard. Yeah. Oh, it's the best. Lots of helmets and pads would be involved, but. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I've never, I've never successfully stood on a skateboard ever. So. I mean, I you're know. still young. Yeah. yeah. 2021 <laughs> is the year. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the Olympics are coming up soon. There's still time. My bones are as firm as they'll ever be. <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> yeah, time is of the essence, Austin. Truly. I just want to go back to what you said. So this is, I mean, we probably won't keep this because it's going to make me sound real dumb. But so Anthropocene, that is, you said it started in the 90s where humans started making impacts, leaving impacts on the rocks. Well, so it got accepted, like they, people were proposing it, like 1989, 90s, recently it got accepted within like the last five years. Wow. So it's something that's been an idea for a while, like the changing climate. And, you know, you think of that as like geology. So like with nuclear weapons that have gone off, that off gases somewhere and then that gets put into the geology mm -hmm. or like trains back in the day, you know, they would like eject stuff. And then now that has gotten back into our geology and our ecosystem, you know, you see it in the ocean with fish and radiation and plastic and all that. So it's this thing that we can't deny that we've been a huge part of. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people do, but yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, why. I mean, <laughs> some people still find a way, yeah. Noted, Catherine, good note. Yeah, that's wild. That's so cool. Yeah, I like the thought of that. I feel like I'm the least geologically informed person who loves to nerd out when I like look at the landscape I'm like imagine all this under the ocean like you could just totally. swim over there <laughs> or like especially living near the canyon I think the Glenwood Canyon has every time I drive through it I almost have to have like a silent meditation on just how amazing time wind water rock are and how fleeting our own lives are <laughs> 
that's something that's really cool about this area is that you can see it all mm -hmm. every day where glaciers came through. And that's something I'm really fortunate for is going to the public schools here. They really push the education of natural sciences. So you'll go out our geology final. We went out and went on a hike and had to identify things in our area. So it was like the most local thing that got us all interested in this area around us. And I think that's something that so many people that are from here carry with them, no matter what they do. And it's almost ingrained in you. So it's very natural for me to think about like ecology when I'm thinking about starting a business or how I operate in the world. I mean, we got to think about it, right? You know, I've been watching this really amazing documentary. I don't know if documentary is the right word, but with Fran Lebowitz, she's talking about like making this kind of like too close to home joke about she's in her 70s. Young people come to her and they're like, what should I be doing? What kind of artist should I be? Because she's a poet and writer. And But she's like, um, you should be a person who finds water because I'm pretty sure in 2050, we're not going to have any. I'm not going to be alive. <laughs> so it's not a problem for me, but you should definitely do whatever it is to find water. And I'm like, wow. yeah, maybe that is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I guess I say all that because we have to find, there's going to be, we have to think about it. Our impact on the world around us in a way that I don't think other generations obviously have had to think about or cared about. So it's super important. Or at least white Western cultured <laughs> generations. Yeah. And that's something I definitely think about, but that's another reason that I try and give as much care to the skateboard as I can is like out of the respect for the materials. Like, right. no, I don't want to run a power tool through you. I just want to like shape this by hand and like carefully do this and like look at all the grain and appreciate all that nature did and not cover it with paint or all these toxic things and let it like my skateboard still breathe. They're like a natural piece of wood still. Very and so cool. it's a different, it actually feels different when you ride it. Mm. That could be me, but um <laughs> It's actually like the ones that I skateboard, I'll get the wood and I'll make myself a board. And it's the freshest skateboard I've ever had because it came from the forestry people to me. I made a board and then there it is. It didn't sit in a warehouse for two months and then get shipped to a skateboard shop and sit there for two months. You know, it's like direct. And so I think there's something about that too. It's like the respect for the materials and giving people something that's quality because there's so much stuff that's just not quality anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we just put up with it. We just accept it. We're like, we'll just go to Walmart and get another lamp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, been there. Do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel like the next thing that's jumping into my mind is like what would be interesting is kind of you've alluded to going to grad school and also your undergrad, but maybe if you could take us on uh, your career journey, because since you are a maker, you have so many things you fit under the definition of, of professional path. And I'd love for everybody to really understand where you started and maybe even where you are, you know, looking to be <laughs> if it's not where you are right now. <laughs> I think growing up in a mountain town kind of primes you to be a multi-hyphenate because you live so seasonally. Like I remember growing up and it'd be like snowboarding in the winter and then you'd have skateboarding, but there'd also be like baseball at some point and then you'd do golf. And so you're like all these different things and you're just used to this seasonal shuffle. Um, and as I got older, I got more into snowboarding and that was my original career path. So I competed in snowboarding. By the time I finished high school, I had sponsors and was like ready to keep going in that path, but also decided I wanted to go to school. So I was going to do like the first semester of college, I was going to do journalism and mass media because I was like, 
photography works with that. That's great. Got there, took the first class for that and was like, I don't want to work in that industry. I'll just go straight into photography. But I also decided to stay that winter, keep staying in school because I liked the college environment. I liked starting to study art. Uh, My sponsors weren't as excited about that. And I kind of like lost a few in the process of deciding to go to school. Mm-hmm. But I kept snowboarding. So I do snowboarding like five days a week in school, like two or three. Hey girl, what a dream. Right. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was like back and forth between Boulder and Aspen every weekend, uh, a lot of time on the road. And the more I got involved in art, the more I just, I had a really great foundations teacher who inspired me to just keep doing everything. She was like, try sculpture. And once I tried sculpture, it just opened all these doors. Try this, try that. And so I started accumulating the skills then, kept the snowboarding thing up, but that would be kind of like the winter thing. And then in the summer, I took on mountaineering too, because I didn't have enough stuff going on. So I was like climbing mountains. So I'd be working in Boulder and then I'd like climb mountains on the way back to Aspen to teach skateboard lessons in the summer to hike more mountains on the way back to Boulder. And I started working in a shop that we repurposed glass. And so that was my first shop environment and it was pretty like uh, pieced together. It wasn't the like most dialed in shop. So that was a good learning experience too. learning how to use tools that weren't meant to cut glass to cut glass. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. Yeah. yeah. A lot of like broken glass. It's like none of the glass is tempered. So it'll just like explode at some point. Oh, wow. Oh. You know, we're using like saws with a hose attached to make it a little safer. Explosions but... and sharp things. <laughs> yeah. Minimum wage, like all the, best things of a good first shop job but learning that and like learning how to use that and learning something that was so random showed me that it was cool to just take on random jobs Mm -hmm. so moved back up here to take snowboarding a little more seriously but also started working at an art gallery and so that was when I started handling art for the first time and I was just like the art handler I'd install the shows and that was it then it turned into shipping and receiving doing private installs, doing all these things. It kind of snowballed really quickly. So yeah, I got to a good spot with that. And I was like, I need to get out of this for a little bit and go do something else. And so I went to Vancouver and did an MFA there in studio arts. My focus was sound and installation. How ironic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's a sound art scene that started there in the 60s. So I was kind of chasing the tail end of that. Interesting. Um, yeah, and worked with some of like the early people that had started that scene. Like, what yeah. does that mean in terms of like sound art? Um, so the World Soundscape Project was started up there. And a few artists like Barry Truax and Hildegard Westerkamp. And they were really bringing importance to like the soundscape, the sounds that are... Is that where they're just recording like city sounds or any and like compiling sounds of all kinds? Yeah, so it's a pretty broad medium, but these artists specifically were collecting sounds and then also incorporating electronic music or other like piano compositions. So kind of breaching into new music, but using these samples that are from out in the world that carry their own uniqueness because of where they're recorded. Mm -hmm. Kind of just bringing importance to spaces that are around us and paying attention, really using sound in a different way to create compositions that are maybe a little more conceptual than music, but still rooted in this simple thing of just hearing. Mm -hmm. So I got up there, studied with them. Yeah, built my installation there. I built a geodesic dome 
that had like a webcam in it that tracked movement. And so depending on where you went, it would throw sounds over these eight different speakers. So I built like every aspect of it that I could. Wow. I didn't build, yeah. didn't build the computer, but this is that whole like trying to accumulate as many skills for whatever it's going to be. And I got to a point with that where like, that's a huge thing that I built. It was like 17 foot diameter dome that you'd go into. But I kind of realized that was the maximum of what I could build on my own at that point. And I needed to like actually learn how to build stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I'd finished school up. I'd finished my TA up and moved back to Denver where my partner was finishing school at DU. And that's when I started fabricating. I got a job as a welder. Had you ever welded before? I'd done a little bit of welding. So to make my dome, I had to do a little bit of welding because I made a press for that. And I'd done like gas welding back in undergrad. So it was kind of a a ways off, but I was learning a new process. Um, So we had a wood shop, concrete shop, and a metal shop. And that was just us moving around at that point. Just different day, different hat. Mm -hmm. So I kind of ended up being the welder for a bit and then moved into being the shop manager. And at that point, we moved into a building that was three or four times the size of where we were and Mm. hired a lot more people. And so then we had to kind of split off. And that's when I took the role of the concrete shop. Oh, wow. Um, Okay. So that's where concrete comes in. Yeah. So before that, we had all come together as a company and we'd have these big poor days and we'd all just make a huge mess and try and figure out what we were doing. (laughs) So since I had kind of the most mold making experience from my background as a sculptor, and all that, I kind of took the role of the concrete shop and really went in depth with that for about three, four years. Wow. Um, and I ran that shop as the manager and the lead fabricator and mainly doing like countertops and bars. We do a lot of commercial stuff, sinks for... In concrete, concrete. Yeah. So it's glass fiber reinforced concrete. So it's a different thing heavy. than what you see on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. Very heavy. Biggest piece we ever did there was 16 feet long. It was a kitchen island for this person's house. And it turned down into bookshelves on each end. So this is all one solid piece of concrete. Hopefully it was on the first floor. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, we only broke one forklift getting that one in place. Whoa, it was like 2,500 pounds of concrete. Wow. wow. Uh, but luckily the house was so big that it was just like so easy to get in. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would have to be right. For... <laughs> yeah. It was massive. It was insane. Um, but yeah, so we did a lot of that and I kind of I got to go to a few workshops and learn with some of the best people in the industry and really did a lot of research into creating my own mixed designs. So through the like programming that I learned in grad school, I was able to make calculators for my own concrete mixes. So I have a few different mixes that I've made for different specific applications. Like that 16 foot long piece was a very special kind of concrete that is a little more flexible and can bend more. Wow. So we didn't break it getting in. Sure. Excuse my ignorance now. So for something like that, are you then looking to like trademark or, or something? Or no, like it's not like a proprietary say thing. to the world, like I've invented this. No, no, okay. it's a lot more yeah. like chemical. So there's the Portland Cement Association and they put out a handbook like every few years. I've heard of them. I read that, you know, every other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> You'll get their next edition. That's great. <laughs> but yeah, it's all science, really. I didn't come up with the mix that I did based on just like, oh, I think this will work. Mm-hmm but it's tailored based off of other mixes that I've known to work. Well, and again, I feel like you're tying together these two worlds. And I just, I love this, like, maybe it's a thread I'm pulling through your career, but it feels like you want to bring in the artistry into something that's maybe a little bit 
forgive the phrasing, but more basic, like it's a construction job, you're building someone a kitchen. And obviously, you the way you're describing it is making me think like, well, we spend so much time there, we want it to feel like a space that's been designed intentionally. And the way that you're even creating the concrete for this space is, you know, a combination, I, you said science, but also it sounds very artistic, too. You're being careful and thoughtful and creative in the way that you're ensuring someone gets what they want definitely and there's a lot of like parameters that once you know you can work within um and a lot of it is just you got to try it and see what happens and see if it works um but yeah it's interesting because it's such a new product in terms of what concrete is concrete's been around since the romans you know but this Mm -hmm. is specialized so most sidewalks you're pouring at like four inches thick so most people think concrete is four inches thick but i can make it one inch thick and i can make it black or purple or pink or whatever you know and these are things that people don't know and once they start to figure out about it they get really excited and you can custom tailor your entire surrounding based on that i did a lady's kitchen that was bright blue and people were like why because she knows what she wants you know she's (laughs) she's convinced and it looked amazing i'm not brave enough to go and be like yeah i want this crazy blue concrete but it worked out in her space and it's like i think something like that is so much more valuable even if it's a little different or there's a little more character to it than just a piece of corian that's like perfect plastic right and that's gonna last just as long as the concrete but the concrete has character and it'll evolve with you Mm -hmm. sort of that's awesome well and i feel like it's taking what almost maybe the industrial revolution has given us to take for granted which is the manufacturing the sameness creating something at mass so that a whole globe can you know presumably move from third world whatever phrasing that means into first world but what I love is I feel like you're giving me all these ways to think about my surroundings or things that I'm touching and interacting with as like what if the magic was put back in like think about if it wasn't mass produced but instead there was somebody intentionally being like well I mean what do you want it to look like (laughs) (laughs) how can we (laughs) make this for you specifically I think that's really cool yeah, it's like a cup of coffee or tea is so much better out of a hand-thrown mug than, you know, factory there. And it's yeah. like, it looks weird and you can tell that it's handmade and maybe it didn't come out exactly how they wanted, but there's something that's so much more like, you know, a person made that. I have a whole collection of handmade mugs from my college years that my parents love to bring out <laughs> and they're the most uncomfortable, ugly, <laughs> beautiful things I've ever done. Right, it's like the wabi-sabi, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, so I worked with them for, it was like three and a half, four years, moved back up here to the Valley and started back up at the museum, which is like a new museum now. It's a much bigger building. So it's a whole different world. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, that was September of last year. And then, yeah, I've been doing that for about a year and then started my company and the pandemic showed up and surprise yeah here just showed up one day yeah so it has felt like there's been like a common thing pulling through all of that and I've known that I've been interested in the art world the fine art world as well as Mm -hmm. kind of the furniture and fabrication design world and where those cross over so it's been really interesting to kind of work through those and think of every job as like a way to gain something else or some other experience or some skill that'll be useful in the future, maybe, hopefully. Yeah. Well, the thing I wanted to touch on in the bio that you sent us 
you said that you see this through line from the beginning of your career to where you are now and that you have sort of this centralized goal that you've kind of been refining over time. And I'd love to just hear more or hear you explain what that means to you. Growing up, being an artist and then like going to school and being like an institutional artist, as it were, like you always want to come back to your practice and you always want to make the stuff that you're really interested in making. You know, undergrad, when you're in it, you feel like, yeah, everyone's going to be an artist. Like, we're all going to do this. It's going to be great. We're going to have jobs at the end of this. You You really believe you're so like fresh to the world that you think it's all going to just like happen. And then you have to keep going with that and you keep going. And then grad school, it's like my feeling with that was like, yeah, we can all be teachers if we want to be teachers. Is that what you want to do? Uh, Do you want to keep making art or do you want to teach? You know, and so it's another one of those where like, how far do you want to go? We can do it all. And you have to kind of zero in and see like where you want to be. So having some experience in the institution and seeing that is good for me because I don't necessarily want to just go out and be a painter and like sell paintings all the time and do that. That's not something that I'm really interested in. And knowing that my background as a sound artist and an installation artist, people don't usually buy those things. So I kind of know. No one bought the job. All the time. <laughs> yeah, no one. Not yet. It's in a storage unit here. It might be a greenhouse one day. We'll see. Ooh, um, I know someone who needs greenhouses. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so knowing that it's like sound art or installation, it's more of these unique opportunities that you get to make something and share something. And so, again, that's like with starting a skateboard company where I'm like, this isn't going to be how I pay my bills, but this is something that I want to do. The same as like keeping on with sound art and knowing that there's not really an economic return for this, but there's something that's there. And so the goal is to be able to support a practice of that. Like I like drawing and making music and skateboarding and stuff. So to like continue being able to support those through my other practice. But it's also a realization I've had recently in gaining all these skills and all these things that I want to do for myself. They're also very valuable to people out in the world. Mm-hmm. So being able to provide these as services throughout my company is something that I'm seeing as also a good opportunity. I'm interested in framing my own photography. So I'm setting up a framing portion of my shop right now, and then that'll be available to other people. Um, I do art installation on the side and I hire all my friends from work because I know they're out of work for two months too. So it's like a way that I can bring income in to myself and also support my friends that are living the same multi-hyphenate lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like, all the tools that I use are the same ones that other people need for these processes. And whether it's Photoshop or a chop saw or a table saw or whatever, it's like being able to hire those out and help other people create their vision is something that I think is also important as an artist. Using what you know to help other people, be it a designer, another artist, or just someone that has an idea and doesn't really know how to go about it. And I'm seeing that as like a nice little niche to fall into and kind of seeing where it goes, you know, it'll keep evolving. The huge thing that I do now, I've gotten back into concrete and most of the concrete I've been doing lately has been for artists at the art museum. So they come in and they have a specific idea for something that incorporates concrete. So for a recent show, I poured a 250 square foot concrete lake in the art museum. So incredible. This is (laughs) basically just a plinth for sculptures to go on, Mm -hmm. but it's like really crazy complex thing and like a really fun thing to do. But yeah, it's really kind of a specialized thing. There's not a lot of people up here that know how to do something like, I mean, you could pour it. It's not solid. It would be like 10,000 pounds solid, which <laughs> wouldn't really work. So it's only about 2000 pounds. Which is a lot. Also hope it's on the first floor. Uh, it is in the basement, <laughs> but that's just as good. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, concrete's something that's really popular in art right now. So it's a nice yeah. little place to be. But yeah, so that's what I'm trying to do now is kind of redefine the concrete that I'm doing, not necessarily pouring, you know, 250 square feet of concrete for a bar that's going to stay open for three months. Um, we're trying to do these things with artists that might travel and go see the world. Because I run an eco-friendly skateboard company and then I make stuff with concrete, which is the second biggest producer of CO2 in the uh-huh. world. Oh. It's an interesting balance of how you justify both those things. And so it's easier if it's going and it's going to live on, you know. Yeah. A well-made counter soft will last for 50 or 100 years if you take care of it. So that's a huge thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you kind of touched on... I don't think a lot of people or the magnitude of what it can be today is that, you know, artists come up with these ideas, but it's not necessarily that individual artist who's able to like do these things. And so fabricators play such a huge role in bringing these ideas to reality. And so, you know, it's not necessarily Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel, like plugging away. Like it takes, (laughs) it takes a team if you want to be on a timeline and, so that's really interesting, like you said, to bring these ideas to fruition for other makers and artists. The thing that strikes me, kind of going back to this idea of you having this shop and kind of the ultimate goal of all of your career throughout is to have this kind of at an artist community or this, yeah, artist community. <laughs> Those are the words I meant to use. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the thing about it that I find really interesting is that we have talked a lot on this podcast. I'm sure you've listened to every episode, but we talk a lot about traps and tricks in your career. The tricks are tricks of the trade that you're learning to build on your skill set, and traps are sort of time wasted on things that you didn't need to learn or should have outsourced that skill to somebody else. And the greatest thing about the story that I'm hearing from you is that you are taking like it's all a trick for you. You've taken all of this skill set and learned all of these things. They're all equally useful because I'm going to end up with one community in the end where I can share all of these skills with people who need them as needed instead of being like, well, it was a waste for me to learn how to weld because ultimately I didn't end up being a welder. You can teach somebody else to be a welder in this community that you're creating where all of your skill set becomes useful through what is ultimately like your greatest art piece. The real art is the friends we made along the way. Oh my God, Austin. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's so true. And I learned that in grad school. I was very fortunate. Uh, We had an artist in resident traditional carver named Bo Dick. And he was like 62 at the time. But we became really good friends just because we were there. And I'd go hang out in their shop. And their process is so different. They just have a few stumps throughout the shop and they're like chainsawing and then like carving stuff out, but just seeing how that shop operated and seeing them share skills with each other and teach techniques. And like, it goes back to this idea of culture. It's like perpetuating this culture of maybe it's like not traditional and it's all kind of a hodgepodge of all this stuff that I've learned, but it's continuing my culture and it's pushing that off and like letting it have a place to live. And I learned so much from working with someone else and seeing how they do something. And it's always this constant communication. And Well, and I feel like I'm trying to parse whether you're, it's your attitude or maybe is it the maker attitude of, of that community kind of intelligence or sharing what you have, ensuring that there's sort of like an egalitarian usefulness for everything. Everyone can kind of be made part of 
something. And I love that because I think that there's other guests we've talked to or other industries, at least that I've worked in, where it's definitely like, you know, more shark-like, right? So people aren't there to teach you how to do it. It's my contacts. It is my, you know, setup. And I will disperse to you what I need you to help me do, but I'm not by any means helping you progress. And I love the idea of thinking about the way you've constructed your professional career and whether maybe, like I said, is it just you or is it everyone in your community being a little bit more open-minded to this idea of like, it's, it's a net benefit. If I help you succeed, I'll succeed as well. And I, I wish more of the business world sometimes incorporated that because I don't know, Catherine, back me up. PR is not quite like that, I would say. Well, I mean, I'll add to that and say like it, there are, I think we could all learn, a lot of business could learn from that kind of we all rise together mentality because I do think there's an agency setup where it is you're pitted against even your coworkers sometimes to be, to have this like proprietary information, which isn't proprietary at all. It's just, you've done the hard work. And there's this idea that if you share it with someone, you're at a loss. And as a society, we're taught a lot that there's this loss when you give something away. And if you're not properly compensated for it, and I've seen it both sides, like, fortunately there are people like I work with a woman and have for several years now, who has been in the PR industry for so long, has worked at the top echelon that she's not nervous about giving away her information. She's very generous with it. And because of that, she's done very well. It's not in spite of, I think more people could learn from that. Yeah, I think that's something that I've noticed. I mean, so there's a concrete design school by this fabricator, Brandon Gore, and he's very open with all of his information. And he's shared, he's been making concrete for 16 years and his whole kind of outlook on it is like, I want to help you get good at this. So you can charge what you need to do so that we can establish a consistency throughout all of this for our fabricators. So we can all get paid what we deserve. And there isn't one guy out there that's doing it for like half the price of everyone else. And everyone's able to produce quality work. I'm hearing in everything that you're saying, this intentionality with where you've gone and what you've done. And I'm just, I guess I'm curious kind of on the both sides of that, right? So whether that was actually true or if that's an outsider looking in being like, oh my gosh, Eric, you're so intentional with everything you do. Or are you truly seeking that? And and then the other side of that being like, have you ever had to work somewhere or do something that was not within your ethos or didn't meet the expectations maybe that you've laid out? Because you do, you have a poetic mind. It sounds like you think through so much. And I know that there's a lot of people that are multi-hyphenates that probably would love to be working with purpose and intention every day and instead have to go do something maybe that's a little more soul-sucking or less a part of, you know, the ethos that they think they have in their life. Those are the things I don't list on my CV or resume. Fair. You know, I've got a, <laughs> enough of those as like dishwasher, grill cook, a ski technician at a ski rental place. I don't even ski. Um, <laughs> you know, there's like all those things and all the things that you do in between, but it's all part of that sustaining thing. And I, I love your answer. Cause like, I mean, I'm jesting, like you sound like a very, you have a sunny disposition, but I, I think it's helpful to almost have the frame of mind that it seems like you have with 
trying to kind of not necessarily see the soul sucking nature of being a dishwasher and how it's taking away from an experience you'd rather be having, but instead, like you said, there's something to be learned or, or utilized there. And I mean, some of that's probably, you know, a little bit of privilege that we all have. I mean, it's not we grew up in the mountains. There's no getting around probably like the ability to be a little choosier or a little bit lighter, but I do, I like the idea too, of the like, no shame in the game that you're bringing to this. It's like, nah, I I've done the dishwasher. I've been the, the ski tech and those aren't career goals per se, but they're all contributing in some way to my life. And I'm going to choose to like use the time or experience the time well so that I can use my life successfully, I guess. Totally. Yeah. And I think being a dishwasher, being a prep cook actually really trained me well for how to run my own shop and like how to organize. Because a kitchen is very similar to a wood shop. You know, you have your like prep stations, you have your workstations, you have your sous chef stations, you have all these different things. And as prepared as you can be, you know, if you have everything organized in these little containers, it's that much more efficient when the rush comes. Well, thank you so much, Eric. This was a fascinating conversation. Uh, as one of our first guests that I don't know personally, I'm really glad that Catherine had the good sense to invite you to be on. It was uh, a very cool conversation and it's been interesting to hear your artist story and how all of your work history and art history has woven together into where you're at now. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to hear some future episodes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you guys so much. Definitely. Really nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, and have then, a good one. Yeah, have a great week. Bye. Bye. Cool. That was so fascinating. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, that was uh, that was awesome. I'm I'm happy that we had him and got to go into all of yeah. those spaces. I love the idea that he is yeah. kind of building towards this sort of like artist utopia of gathering all of these skills and ideas and being able to share them with other people. Totally. I mean, and I relish his mindset. I feel like you know, I am always trying to be positive or think intelligently about life, but I appreciated the way that he is not only capable of weaving together everything that he's done, but he seems so earnest about it. There's a, an honesty behind this. Oh yeah, I know this skill lent to this skill lent to that job lent to, you know, this change in career path. And I think We've heard from a number of multi-hyphenates that maybe in their own way were sharing that, but are also more expressive of like, there was hard, it was hard, it was weird. It was challenging to piece together all these different disparate parts of my professional career. And I, it was fun to talk to somebody maybe who's willing to see all the parts as a whole, almost before they become the whole. Thank you everybody for listening. We'd love if you'd please rate and subscribe. It means a lot that you're listening and we'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on social media. Um, you can find us on Instagram at blood, sweat careers, and you can always send your notes of admiration at blood, sweat careers, pod at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. Bye.